Welcome to NDD Evening News. Our top story tonight, over 100 people killed in explosions in Iran. Over in the Israel-Hamas war, mixed reactions after Israel reportedly struck and killed a Hamas leader in Lebanon. The son of a hostage in Hamas captivity isn't happy about the strike. Jason Perry reports. Tears of joy as captured Russian and Ukrainian troops return home. What we know about the latest exchange of prisoners of war. The top House Republican leads dozens of lawmakers to the southern border today, highlighting the record surge of illegal immigrants as Republicans and Democrats work head-to-head -head on a solution that both parties can swallow. Melina Weiskup has the latest. A potential Biden-Trump rematch looking ever more likely as President Biden is set to jumpstart his 2024 campaign with a speech on democracy. What former President Trump plans to do in response on the upcoming third anniversary of January 6th. Iris Tao is at the White House. Who should former President Trump pick for a running mate? South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem says it shouldn't be GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Arlene Richards finds out the reason why. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Just a day after Israel's reported strike in Lebanon that killed a Hamas commander, reactions are mixed. Meanwhile, Iran, which is known for backing the terrorist groups fighting Israel, is now facing attacks on its own soil. A pair of bombs in the country reportedly killed over a hundred people. Entities Jason Perry has the war update. After the airstrike near Beirut that killed a Hamas leader, the Hamas terrorist group on Wednesday said the strike was an act of terrorism and a violation of Lebanon's sovereignty. Innocent Lebanese civilians now find themselves caught in the crossfire. There was an assassination which led to the death of leaders. As you can see, we're surrounded by wreckage and cars. It's harmful to Beirut. It feels like an invasion of Beirut, an invasion of Lebanon. Meanwhile, this Israeli man's father is currently being held hostage by Hamas terrorists. And he thinks the airstrike that killed the Hamas leader in Lebanon has hurt the chances of his own father coming home. Of course, this will not help. It's only do the opposite. So uh, I don't know who's in charge and who's giving the order, but he's definitely not thinking about the uh, hostage negotiation talks. He said this about the approximately 100 hostages who remain in captivity in the Gaza Strip. I'm afraid that they are running uh, out of hope there, and the lack of hope might kill them as well, alongside the horrible condition, the, starv the starvation, the, the, the sanitary uh, condition in Gaza, the Israeli bombing, uh, the Israeli soldier who might accidentally shoot them, as, as happened before. The, the factors that can kill him are growing larger by the hour. And sadly, on Wednesday, Israel Defense Forces announced the death of another hostage. 
The IDF said Sahar Baruch was killed last month during an attempted rescue operation. And they said at this point, it's not possible to determine whether he was murdered by Hamas or killed by Israeli forces fire. Israeli officials have said they're determined to bring all of the hostages home. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Israel's spy chief said they're intent on finding other people as well. We will get them, no matter where they are. Let every Arab mother know that if her son took part, directly or indirectly, in the October 7th massacre, his blood is forfeit. Israel continues to fight Iranian-backed terrorist groups on multiple fronts. And Iran, which has been working behind the scenes supporting these terrorist groups in their attacks against Israel, is now facing trouble at home. Iran held a memorial ceremony on Wednesday for late Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by a U.S. airstrike in 2020. And during the ceremony, two bombs exploded near the crowds, killing at least 103 people, according to Iran's state-run media. Now, after the first bomb exploded, there was reportedly a pause for about 15 minutes, and then the second bomb went off. Terrorists used delayed explosion techniques to target people responding to the scene and try to kill more people. No group immediately claimed responsibility for the attack. Jason Perry, NTD News. Over to the war between Russia and Ukraine, tears of joy as the two countries exchange hundreds of prisoners of war. Ukraine said 230 prisoners of war, including six civilians, returned home today. Russia said nearly 250 of their troops were freed. This was the biggest single release of captives since the war began almost two years ago. The United Arab Emirates helped mediate the deal. Russia and Ukraine had multiple prisoner swaps in 2022, but they slowed down in 2023. The last prisoner swap was in August of 2023. Among the Ukrainian troops released today were some of those who fought in milestone battles for Snake Island and the city of Mariupol in 2022. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shared photos of the freed troops and said, we remember each and every one of our people. Russia offered no other details of the exchange. Dozens of House Republicans are at the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Their trip comes as Customs and Border Patrol saw a record high number of illegal crossings in December, around 300,000 crossings. That is roughly the size of the city of Orlando crossing into the United States illegally in a single month. NTD's congressional correspondent Melina Weisscup reports for us. House Republicans have made several trips to the southern border, but this is the first time that Mike Johnson is leading a delegation as the speaker, and it comes at a time when pressure is high, as right now the Senate is working on a deal with the White House. They're trying to find common ground solutions over immigration and border policy, how to change those policies to fix the immigration issue. But House Republicans, they have their own list of demands, much of which includes returning to Trump-era border policies, such as the Remain in Mexico policy. This delegation was made up of around 64 Republican lawmakers from 26 states, the Republican speaker says, and they met with Border Patrol agents, they met with local residents, they viewed processing centers, all to get a grip of the current situation at the border. Here's what those Republicans had to say about the urgency of the issue, arguing why their demands deserve to be met. When, when President Trump entered the Oval Office, he 
He put in the Remain in Mexico policy. He ended the catch and release policy. He did the fundamental common sense things that stem the flow. It was down to a tiny fraction of what it is right now. In December alone, it's the highest number in history. And, and it's going to continue because they're showing no, uh, no, no inclination at all to change it. The greatest domestic threat to the national security and the safety of the American people is Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And that last person you just heard from was Congressman Mark Green. He's the chairman on the Homeland Security Committee here. He says that next week his committee will officially begin those impeachment proceedings against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, arguing that he has failed to uphold his duty to secure the border. But the DHS Secretary has pushed back, saying he simply doesn't have the money or the resources to 100% carry out his job effectively, saying that the ball is now in Congress's court. Take a look at what he had to say. We need additional personnel uh, to advance our security at the border. We need technology to advance our fight uh, against fentanyl. We need additional asylum officers to really accelerate the asylum adjudication process. But Republicans argue that if Congress does give the DHS more money, that money will only be used to process more illegal immigrants and release them into the country rather than use the money to try to stem the flow of illegal immigration to begin with. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And NTD's Jason Blair is down in Eagle Pass, Texas, where he spoke to lawmakers about the trip. I'm here in Eagle Pass, Texas, right in front of the U.S.-Mexico border. Now today, 64 members of Congress were here. They were touring the area in an event hosted by Representative Tony Gonzalez. Now they spoke with local law enforcement. They spoke with people here on the ground that are seeing the situation at the border every day. They were speaking to ranchers. They were touring facilities. And afterwards, I got a chance to speak with a couple of them. And here's what they had to say. Uh, today we have uh, members of Congress from 26 states, uh, also American Samoa, uh, and so uh, we are here to learn the latest, and sadly the latest is the American families have been at no greater risk of attack than they are today. Uh, with the hundreds of terrorists that have crossed the border in the last year, uh, but during the Biden administration, every American family is at risk. It's just inconceivable the madness of the uh, Biden administration not understanding. The Biden administration should be ashamed of themselves. New Yorkers should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, the thought of um, by instituting uh, an open border uh, for the uh, sex trade, for human trafficking, for uh, human slavery. Um, th this is inconceivable in the 21st century. And hey, a key point. There's no country that doesn't maintain their border except the United States. Every other country uh, and maintains their border because they understand that it would lead to chaos, it would lead to victimization, it would lead to uh, persecution of individuals. And so our border needs to be maintained as uh, any other border in the world. And the very frustrating piece of it is it's correctable. Now, the best way or the long-term way that the American people can correct it is by electing President Trump back into office, or frankly any Republican, but my preference is President Trump because he proved he could do it. But secondly, if Biden would just correct course and, 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 and just instill one provision, probably of our, of our H.R. 2 legislation that we passed in, in Republican Congress, and that is remain in Mexico. If you're seeking asylum, you need to do it in your first country of origin, your first country of asylum. If you do that, like all other countries do, or just about all, uh, this, this problem would be, would be reduced by 70, maybe 80 percent. 
A major speech coming up as President Biden is seeking to draw a contrast with former President Trump. That's as polls show Biden trailing Trump in key battleground states. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao reports. So we are expecting to see a major split screen moment this Saturday on the third anniversary of January 6th between former President Trump and President Biden. And President Biden is giving a speech on democracy at Valley Forge, a historic revolutionary war site near Philadelphia. And the goal here is to try to convince voters that former President Trump poses a historic threat to democracy, one that Biden's campaign says has only grown more dire in the years after 2020. Meanwhile, the White House today is saying this about January 6th. Watch. Uh, what happened on Jan January 6th was unprecedented, uh, an attack on our core principles, an attack on our democracy. What we saw uh, was an attack on our rule of law. And the White House tells us that President Biden today also had lunch with a group of historians and scholars about, quote, the ongoing threats to democracy and democratic institutions here in America and around the world. So we are really seeing President Biden's campaign here trying to jumpstart this year's campaign events with a theme about a fight for democracy and Biden versus Trump as we're getting closer and closer to a potential rematch between the two. President Trump is holding two campaign events in Iowa this Saturday, of course, as the Iowa caucus just about a week away. And let's not forget that Trump just weeks ago has also called President Biden a threat to democracy, accusing him of launching politically motivated persecution against Trump himself. So it does remain to be seen how the two leading candidates in the 2024 race will target and potentially respond to each other in their addresses this Saturday. Back to you. Is GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley a good pick for vice president? Not, according to South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, who said it would be a mistake. NTD's Arlene Richards has this story and more election updates. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem says she doesn't usually agree with GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley. She told Newsmax on Tuesday that Haley shouldn't be on former President Trump's list for vice president, and that if he did pick Haley, it would be a mistake. Nome was previously asked if she would consider being vice president. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would in a heartbeat just because, uh, you know, you respect the position and the person who asks you to do something and then see if you really believe that you could make a difference. She said on Tuesday that Haley is a different person depending on whatever works for her political agenda. Trump hasn't made a clear indication of who he may choose as a running mate. And with the Iowa caucuses less than two weeks away, GOP support for Trump is building. House Majority Whip Tom Emmer Wednesday became the last top four House Republican to endorse the former president in the 2024 Republican primary. He follows House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Speaker Mike Johnson and House Conference Chairwoman Elise Stefanik. Emmer told the Washington Examiner it was time for Republicans to unite behind Trump because Democrats have made clear they will use every tool in their arsenal to try and keep Joe Biden and his failed policies in power. We cannot let them. Over in Utah, independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. successfully qualified for the state's presidential ballot. Kennedy's press secretary announced that he reached the minimum threshold of 1,000 signatures. Now he needs to qualify in 50 more states. At a press conference in Utah on Wednesday, he said some states refused to cooperate. Those are Maine, New Hampshire, and North Dakota. This is something that would never happen to a presidential campaign from the major political parties. 
Kennedy said the major political parties have an undemocratic lock on the presidential process. If Kennedy succeeds in getting on all of the state's ballots, he may qualify to get on the debate stage for the general election and potentially take a significant number of independent votes from the major party candidates. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Coming up, deterring malign influence from China. Missouri is limiting the farmland foreign adversaries can buy. Ariane Pazdar tells us why the state is implementing the new rule. Subscription canceled. More Americans are ditching their streaming services and becoming more careful with their money. And how many friends does the average American have? A new study looks at social circles and priorities. We'll take a look after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. Multiple states temporarily evacuated their Capitol buildings today due to bomb threats. The threats affected proceedings in Kentucky, Mississippi, Georgia, Connecticut, Michigan and Minnesota. No states have reported finding any threatening items in those buildings. Kentucky said there was a mass email sent to several secretaries of state and state offices across the country. The center claimed to have placed explosives inside state capitals. A copy of an emailed threat obtained by CNN showed government offices in at least 23 states listed as recipients. Missouri is limiting the farmland China and other foreign adversaries can buy. This comes shortly after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suggested he'd implement similar rules nationwide. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. Missouri's Republican Governor Mike Parson signed an executive order on Tuesday limiting the farmland foreign adversaries can buy. We are banning all purchases of Missouri agriculture land within 10 miles of critical military facilities by adversary nations, including China. The order also affects Russia, Cuba, Iran, North Korea and Venezuela. But the governor added that the main focus of the order is on China. He says this aims to safeguard the military, prevent security threats to the state, and give Missourians a greater peace of mind. The governor also suggested he would extend the rule to include all land in the state if he could, but that his executive power is limited. The rule does not impact existing landowners or attempts to purchase land by friendly nations. We're talking about Sweden, we're talking about Italy, you're talking about Germany, you're talking about the United Kingdom, Canada, Japan. Arkansas and Florida have previously enacted similar measures to deter malign influence from China. Just last week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis talked about how he would handle farmland in the U.S. if elected president. Food security is national security. I don't want China buying farmland here. I view that as a national security asset that we have so that our country can remain free and independent. In 2023, DeSantis limited China's ability to buy farmland as well as land near military sites and critical infrastructure in the state. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. More and more people are canceling their streaming services. Experts say consumers are adopting wiser spending habits. NTD's Dave Martin has more. More and more Americans are canceling their subscriptions to the major streaming services, such as Netflix, 
HBO Max, and Disney+. Around a quarter of subscribers canceled at least three services during the past two years. They've been educated to keep track of their subscriptions and um, you know, kind of use, a, I guess what I would call, serial monogamy toward their streaming services. So you know, I'm going to spend a little time with Disney+. Plus. I'm going to binge watch all of the shows that I enjoy on, um, on Disney+. Plus. And then I'm going to cancel and I'm going to go to HBO. Robbie Kelman-Baxter is the author of The Forever Transaction and The Membership Economy. She believes the main reason for the cancellations is subscription fatigue. The average American spends around $219 a month on subscriptions, and they're getting wiser by canceling what they're not watching and by watching other kinds of content. Baxter says when Netflix first came out, introduced streaming to the world. Streaming solved many problems no one else was solving, but now there are hundreds of such services. To get people back, the services are producing original content. Which is ironic to me because originally the whole point of Netflix streaming was they just had this huge catalog of content that was kind of timeless, you know, mostly movies, but now people are very much attuned to what's the latest. Um, and so that's changing how these organizations are working. They're becoming real and movie studios. Baxter says there are many alternatives to streaming, like listening to podcasts, watching something that's not on a service, or reading a book. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. What is the extent of American social circles? A survey analyzed the figures. Here is NTD's Stephanie Sakal with the highlights. Recent Pew research has illuminated the landscape of American friendships, showcasing the variety of connections people from Dungeons & Dragons groups to potluck neighbors. The study revealed that 61% of U.S. adults prioritize close friendships for a fulfilling life, outweighing preferences for marriage, children, or financial success. While 53% have one to four close friends, 38% claim five or more, with 8% expressing having no close friends, highlighting concerns about a growing loneliness epidemic, especially in larger friend groups echoing friendships in 90s sitcoms. The study looked into gender-based differences in conversation topics, emphasizing the significance of fostering diverse connections for overall well-being, particularly as the pandemic reshapes social dynamics. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News. Coming up, attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea already taking a toll on ports in Africa. A supply chain expert says we will begin to feel the impacts in the U.S. as well. What will those be? And Claudine Gay is no longer the president of Harvard, but will things change? Our guest says her failures are symptomatic of deeper problems. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The Hezbollah terrorist group in Lebanon vowed revenge after a senior Hamas leader was killed in Lebanon, and over 100 people were reportedly killed during a bomb attack in Iran during a memorial service for General Qasem Soleimani. House Speaker Mike Johnson and dozens of other House Republicans visited the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. This comes as the House is set to begin impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. 
President Biden will deliver a speech near a revolutionary war site on January 6th, marking the third anniversary of the Capitol breach. This will be his first public campaign appearance for the 2024 election. The Houthi attacks in the Red Sea are impacting global supply chains and causing oil and freight costs to rise. How seriously should the U.S. be taking this as a national security issue? Joining us now to discuss, we have Jim Nels, supply chain consultant and economic analyst. Jim Nels, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Good evening. It's great to be back with you again. To begin, the Red Sea crisis is now spilling over into African ports that are swamped with all these ships that have been rerouted. Now, fuel prices are expected to rise as a result, but give us a sense of what the economic fallout is here. Well, if you look at the, the stretch of the ocean between the Suez Canal and the Gulf of Aden, they call that the I-95 of the ocean. You get about 21,000 ships a year that travel down there, about $9 billion a day of commerce traverse the Red Sea. So the economic impact is quite large. It also includes anywhere from three to eight million barrels of oil a day. And that's why we're seeing oil start to increase. Uh, oil's up a couple of bucks today. Uh, it was down the other day, but I think we're gonna continue to see it rise as more and more shipping companies say, we're not gonna traverse the Red Sea. We're gonna go around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa and add 14 to 21 days to the supply chain. Hmm. And what impacts do these shipping delays and rerouting have on national security? On national security, we'll see start to see store shelves maybe not have as much as you would like to have on there. Uh, you may not be able to get some of the products that you'd like. You're not going to see what we saw during COVID. But the bigger concern is the inability to get oil through the, uh, through the Red Sea. And when you start to combine this with the issues that we have at the Panama Canal, the Panama Canal right now is running at 50% capacity because of very low water levels. So between the Panama Canal and the Red Sea, we're starting to see a very large backup of shipping and we'll start to see congestion at the ports. We saw what happened with that in 2020 and 2021. So there are some national security implications, but hopefully we can get this resolved quickly and we're not gonna say anything to the extent that we saw back during COVID. And speaking of COVID, we saw ship supply lanes hit, especially as factories in China ground to a halt. What can we expect to see this time in terms of the Red Sea? Is this a type of warfare attacking the shipping lanes? Well, it's definitely a type of warfare by attacking the shipping lanes. Fortunately, with the Red Sea, that's primarily a route between Europe and Africa and Europe and Asia. So it doesn't necessarily impact the U.S., to a great extent, again, except for natural resources such as oil. Over the long term, though, we'll start to see more and more things impacted in the United States. But what we can't afford is to start to see huge backups at the ports, because especially in the United States, our ports are so inefficient, it takes forever to unload a ship, and we just can't afford to have that happen from a national security perspective. And now it seems the 10-country coalition to stop these attacks hasn't been that successful. Now, in the 80s, the U.S. launched Operation Praying Mantis to attack Iran. What would it take now to stop the Houthis? It would take something similar. So Operation Praying Mantis was launched by President Reagan after uh, a United States warship hit a mine that was placed in the uh, Gulf by Iran. We decided to destroy two of their oil platforms. We sank half their navy. We need to do something like that today, and it has to be done against Iran, not against the Houthis. The Houthis don't do anything without Iran's permission, without their funding, or without their weapons. So we need some sort of major strikes into Iran to show them that they have to stop this. I'll give the Biden administration credit. So far, they've shown great restraint because they don't 
want to expand the war in Israel beyond Israel and Hamas. Um, but it's now time for them to step up and say, no more Iran, and we're going to punish you for doing this. And if you do it again, we'll punish you a second time and then a third time. They're becoming that petulant little child that thinks that they can continue to steal candy from the grocery store. And it's time for mom to tell them no more stealing candy. And would something on the level of Operation Praying Mantis be permissible nowadays, seeing that Operation Praying Mantis was deemed unjustified back then? Why should we care what other people think? We have to protect our own interests. That's what we need to do. Uh, Israel doesn't care what the world thinks about what they're doing with Hamas. We shouldn't care what the world thinks about what we do to protect our national interests. Jim Nels, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Reactions are coming in after Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned. Joining us now to share his thoughts on the news and comments on American higher education, we have Rabbi Abraham Cooper. He chairs the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and is Associate Dean at the Simon Weisenthal Center. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Happy New Year. Nice to be with you again. Happy New Year indeed. Now, Harvard's President Claudine Gay has resigned. This is following backlash on both allegations of plagiarism and also her testimony on anti-Semitism. She is, however, staying on as faculty. What is your reaction to all of this? Well, my first reaction to her resignation was uh, it should have happened immediately uh, when she said those words where suddenly the issue of um, genocide was a matter of context. And when the potential victim are Jews, uh, I think not only Jews recoiled in, in horror. Um, on the other hand, when you read her statement, uh, it's sort of an indictment she thinks of the system and that she's a victim of racism. I, I think I would tend to identify with those who say that um, she wasn't a victim of racism. I think she was placed in the possession of president, as president, because Harvard perceived this would be the best way to go, uh, to go forward, but not necessarily based on academic uh, credentials. She should have been gone immediately, um, and we'll see, you know, how long she'll stay on in terms of being a, a professor, because the second issue, which I'm not an expert on, thankfully, plagiarism, um, you know, that, that's something that each university has to deal with. And um, it, would, I think, would be difficult for someone to stay on long range when you have that kind of cloud that's uh, hanging over you. Now, expanding on that, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has spoken of this, and he says, quote, the problem at Harvard and unfortunately at most of higher education is deeper than one person. An obsession with toxic wokeness has replaced merit, excellence, and academics. Now, how is the treatment of Jewish students at these higher institutions going to play out at the future of these very institutions? Well, of course, we're talking about elite institutions like MIT, like Cornell, like UCLA, uh, like Columbia. It's like a who's who. Uh, and the goal here, obviously, is that uh, students, whoever they are, uh, need to feel safe and be in an environment that's conducive to uh, intellectual and academic growth. The fact that anti-Semitism has not been dealt with in a serious way by so many institutions uh, we are uh, dealing with one aspect of the tsunami of hate against Jews in the United States that's unprecedented. 
And it'll depend on the leadership from the top. I mean, essentially, Harvard left the Jewish students twisting in the wind. Even over the Hanukkah uh, festival, the Chabad rabbi was told, we have to take the menorah down every night because uh, we can't guarantee the safety, as opposed to, we're going to put a police officer in the vicinity so that the religious symbol will be safe for all eight days. Just completely got it wrong. And I think that for some people who uh, have that uh, approach of, uh, of uh, wokeness, if you will, they don't know what to do about Jews. So more or less, they say, we're white, privileged people. Well, someone forgot to tell my grandparents when they came to this country with less than $10 in their pocket. We're not a race. Uh, Jews come in all flavors, sizes, and colors. So I, I think uh, there are a lot of, I want to talk about intersectionality. On this one, it's a huge mess. It has to do with um, uh, redefining what's a victim, who's a victim, who, how do you deal with bringing about the new term is equity. When the original term that was taught to us by no one less than Martin Luther King Jr. was equality. That's where we stand. Everybody needs to be treated with dignity and equality. And in this very difficult time for the entire world, uh, with such conflict in Russia, Ukraine, and Israel and Gaza, and upcoming elections and debates and uh, social media just weaponizing words, it's a very tough time for everyone, but especially for our community where the head of the FBI said that 63% uh, of all hate crimes in our country are targeting 2.4% of the population, American Jews. And on that note, you actually have a statement on that, and you note that President Gay's failures are symptomatic of deeper problems, including anti-Semitism in many of America's elite universities. Let's hope they all open a new chapter based on justice and equality for all. Give us a sense of what that justice and equality for all would look like in practice. Well, if you want to talk about the great dream, it's the embrace of Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision that someday Americans will wake up and each person will be, uh, you know, dealt with and will be evaluated, not by the color of their skin, but by the quality of their deeds and their actions. It sounds simplistic, but I think that's a place that we have to get back to, at least in terms of a goal that everyone could embrace. Equity, let's say if you're um, a dean has to deal with... Uh, grades. Well, equity means you got to give everybody an A. Equality means everybody has the same shot at getting an A. Those are two different goals. And I think we're right now very, very far afield. And the fact that not just President Gay, but three, the three presidents of three of the top elite schools couldn't answer a straightforward question about genocide and anti-Semitism should be a, a shock uh, to the whole system. Uh, this is just not, um, it's not the kind of leadership that will be able to sustain America in the 21st century going forward. That we're, we're not sure we can even answer some basic questions like standing up for the rights of all, not just for a new list of uh, empowered people who are on the first, uh, in the first line in terms of so-called equity.
equality is the name of the game. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for your time. Happy New Year. Good to see you. And this just in, Donald Trump has formally asked the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the Colorado State Supreme Court ruling that removed him from the state's 2024 ballot under the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist clause. Trump's attorneys wrote in the filing, quote, in our system of government of the people, by the people and for the people, Colorado's ruling is not and cannot be correct. That filing was obtained by CNN. Trump's appeal comes nearly a week after the Colorado GOP filed a separate appeal and two weeks after the state's ruling came down. Colorado's top election official has already made clear that Trump's name will be included on the state's primary ballot when it's certified on January 5th, unless the U.S. Supreme Court says otherwise. Coming up from the U.S. to Taiwan and the European Union, we have the key elections to watch out this year around the world. And in college football, the instant classic between Michigan and Alabama drew a massive TV audience. Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss when we come back. Welcome back. Besides the U.S. general elections in November, there are also other important races happening around the globe. Here are some of the key elections in the world this year. Starting off the year on January 13th, Taiwan will hold its presidential election. Incumbent President Tsai Ing-wen is barred by term limits from seeking re-election. Her party's candidate for president, Lai Ching-de, is currently Tsai's vice president. He has pledged to continue bolstering Taiwan's defenses in the face of threats from communist China. The whole world wants to know whether the people of Taiwan will continue to move forward on the path of democracy in this major election, or whether they will choose to rely on China, follow a pro-China path, and lock Taiwan into China again. Polls show Lai as the front-runner, ahead of candidates from opposition parties Kuomintang and the Taiwan People's Party. Next, from March 15th to 17th, Russia will hold its presidential election. President Vladimir Putin has been in power for 24 years. And on December 8th, he announced he will run for a fifth term. That would be another six years in office, till 2030. The last election in 2021 was dominated by widespread reports of fraud. With the vast majority of opposition figures either in jail or outside Russia, Putin is poised to win. I want to emphasize again that any attempt to sow inter-ethnic and inter-religious discord to split our society is a betrayal, a crime against the whole of Russia. We will not allow anyone to divide Russia, which is the only one we have. Putin's victory would guarantee the war in Ukraine will continue. The Kremlin has said the idea of peace talks on Ukraine's terms are unrealistic. For the first time, the election will take place over three days, and it will cover four regions of Ukraine, recently annexed by Russia in the war. The world's most populous democracy, India, will hold general elections between April and May. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is seeking a third term in office. That's another five years. Surveys show Modi widely popular after a decade in power. Under him, India played a bigger role in global diplomacy and embraced global climate goals. 
2030. Our target by 2030, emissions intensity has to be reduced by 45%. We have decided that we will increase the share of non-fossil fuels to 50%, and we will also keep moving towards the goal of 2070 and net zero. Modi's ruling party scored major victories in provincial elections in December, giving him a boost ahead of the national election. But he still faces a challenge from a 28-party opposition alliance. Next summer, on June 2nd, Mexico will hold its presidential election. Incumbent President Andres Manuel López Obrador is barred by term limits from running again. So Mexico will have a new president, and for the first time, it looks like it will be a woman. The president and his party are backing Claudia Scheinbaum. She's the former mayor of Mexico City. Polls show Scheinbaum having double the support of her opposition rival, Xochitl Galvez. The Mexican president serves one six-year term. Then, from June 6th to 9th, citizens in 27 EU member states will vote for members of the European Parliament. About 400 million eligible voters will choose their representatives. That's 720 seats in total. Members serve five-year terms. No party has held a majority, so the parliament depends on parties forming coalitions. Currently, there is a major coalition between the People's Party and the Socialists. Right-leaning politicians scored recent victories in Italy and the Netherlands. It's worth seeing whether the trend will continue in the 2024 EU election. Finally, on November 5th, the U.S. will have its presidential election. Incumbent President Joe Biden, a Democrat, is running for a second term. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump, a Republican, is also running for his second term in office. The race is likely going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump, just like in 2020. The latest polls show Trump dominating the Republican primary. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the NFL has weighed in on the controversial ending to the Dallas-Detroit game, putting the responsibility on the players instead of the officials. Can you walk us through what happened here? Yeah, any player who's going to be an eligible receiver who wears the numbers from 50 to 79 or 90 to 99, who's going to be an eligible receiver, has to let the officials know beforehand. Otherwise, you'll end up getting a penalty for having an illegal receiver downfield, the illegal touching, even illegal formation, which is a whole other story. Now on this play, it looked like several players went to the referees to report, maybe in an attempt to confuse the other team of who is going to be eligible. Instead, it may have confused the officials instead because I think they got the wrong guy. So when they ran the play, uh, they, they converted, they got the two-point conversion. Uh, it would have won the game, but instead they called a penalty on them, illegal player downfield or illegal touching, I believe, wiped out the score and they ended up losing instead. Now, despite the NFL saying the players bear the responsibility, ESPN is reporting that the officiating crew was downgraded. They will not receive a postseason assignment. So maybe both sides do bear responsibility after all. Well, now elsewhere in the league, several teams have said they'll be resting their star players for this week. This is the last of the regular season. Now, you've said you're against this. Why? Yeah, to me, this is one of those things that looks great on paper, but maybe not so much in reality anyway. And this really only is an option if you're already clinched a playoff spot, and it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. You rest your best players the following week. That way, nobody gets injured. Now, I'll grant the Chiefs are doing it with Mahomes, and they won two of the last four Super Bowls. Maybe Andy Reid knows how to do this. I don't like it because I, you never want to lose your aggressiveness. You never want to let up because once you do, it can be hard to find that aggressiveness again. I've seen it too many times where they do this. It sends the wrong signal to the players. The team then comes out flat the following week in the postseason. 
I think former Celtics coaching great Red Arbach said it best when he said, try to win them all and let the cards fall where they may. Well, now staying in the NFL, Aaron Rodgers made some headlines on the Pat McAfee show regarding Jimmy Kimmel and the Jeffrey Epstein client list. How did they even get on that topic? <laughs> they were talking about NFL conspiracy theories. One of them is that the NFL predetermines who the, who's playing in the Super Bowl by looking at the colors in the Super Bowl logo, which is different every year, released well before the season starts. Now, Rodgers joked that there better be green in next year's logo, obviously referencing the Jets. Somehow someone asked whether this had anything to do with the Epstein list, and Rodgers said, quote, that's be, supposed to be coming out soon. A lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, are really hoping that it doesn't come out, end quote. Kimmel didn't take too kindly to being mentioned. He called it reckless, threatened legal action against him. He also said he's never had any contact with Epstein. Now, Kimmel and Rogers have a bit of a history. Kimmel kind of mocked Rogers last year for publicly saying he wants to see who's on this uh, Epstein list. Rogers, meanwhile, is known for you know going against the mainstream media narrative. He declined the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. I think he feels like uh, he's kind of a target because of that too. Well, now looking at the college game, the TV ratings for the semifinals are in, and the Michigan-Alabama game generated some huge numbers. What do you think is behind that? Yeah, Michigan and Alabama are two of the biggest powerhouse programs. They're one of the most traditional programs. Both have high-profile head coaches, and they represent the two you know, most difficult football conferences, the Big Ten and the SEC. So the hype was incredible. The game lived up to it. It was an instant classic. You had Michigan in control in the first half. Bama stormed back in the third quarter, and then Michigan late had that uh, final fourth quarter drive with a gutsy fourth down conversion. Then a thrilling overtime. Now, the game averaged 27 million viewers, making it the most watched non-NFL sporting event since like 2018. Now, I don't think the title game will generate those kind of numbers because Washington does not have that kind of following, but I think it'll still be pretty good. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.